Welcome to Om Times TV, a division of Om Times Media and Broadcasting. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Joining me today to share the 10 best spiritual books that inspired her life journey is best-selling author, speaker, tea-swilling wordsmith, lazy gardener, and occasional oracle, Maya Toll. A deep believer in connecting with the natural and mystical worlds to transform our lives and restore our sense of wholeness. Maya apprenticed with a traditional healer in Ireland, where she spent extensive time studying the growing cycles of plants, the alchemy of medicine-making, and the psycho-spiritual aspects of healing. She's now the co-owner of the retail store Herbiary, with locations in Asheville, North Carolina, and Philadelphia, PA, and the award-winning author of several books, including Letting Magic In, The Night School, and The Wild Wisdom series. Maya Toll, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy. It's a pleasure. So you said that your shelves are full of books that you haven't read. Why not? It's true. It's true. You know, there are so many books that we are told are the books that we're supposed to read. And I get through about a chapter and a half and I don't want to go back. Nothing yanks at my heart and says, come back to this book. And what I've realized is that I'm really inspired by story. You know, what pulls me is the, the tale and the arc of the story. And so when we're talking nonfiction books, which a lot of spiritual books are, um, there's no story arc, right? So I just very quickly get lost. Um, and it was really, this assignment was so fascinating because there's something in all of us that like, you know, we want to look intellectual and smart, right? So I looked at my shelves and I thought, ooh, now there's a good one. And oh, that's a good one. Um, but the truth is I hadn't made it to the end of them. And I, so I was rigorous with myself on this and really um, looked for books that had changed my thinking deeply. And one of my requirements was I had to have read all the way to the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly what we want from you. We don't want the books, you know, the also rans. We want the ones that really shifted your perceptions. And uh, that's the whole purpose of the book club is to give people those kinds of recommendations, because there is so much out there that people just don't know where to start. And there's nothing worse. I know that feeling. You start a book and you think, ah, <laughs> and you put it down. Yeah. 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 yeah, And you keep it on your bookshelf for a little while because it looks good, yeah. right? Yeah. And then eventually you're like, okay, 
move this one along. Yeah, yeah. Now, you also said that there was one book that didn't make your list, but it deserves an honorable mention. So why don't you tell us what that is before we start? Yeah, so Lauren Groff had a book that came out, um, I think about two years ago called The Matrix. And for me, reading it was like this like culmination of my sense that story can teach us so much, all the bits and pieces of um, philosophy and magic and worldview that have been so important to my life were threaded right on through there, along with the most delightful, rich, delicious storytelling. Um, so I can't say that it was a pinnacle moment where, you know, I did a hairpin turn on my own thinking, but it was more one of those moments where I sank in and was like, oh, there's, there's another thinker out there who's following the same threads that I am. And, um, you know, it's a book that I will return to over and over again. Interesting Lauren Groff fans, um, that's kind of an outlier book. So I've talked to friends who are big Lauren Groff fans, and I haven't read the rest of her catalog. And that book didn't speak to them, but that book spoke so deeply to me. Isn't it interesting how that happens? So clearly you have, as you said, an abiding interest in plants, the alchemy of medicine making and the psycho-spiritual aspects of healing. Was that something that was always there for you from childhood? No, it really wasn't. You know, people say, did you always want to be an herbalist? And I didn't know what an herbalist was until I was, you know, well into my 20s. Um, I'm not sure many people knew what an herbalist was. I feel like it's, you know, it's something that over the course of my lifetime, we've begun pulling um, plant medicine more into the mainstream. But I grew up with Western medicine, you know, with pharmaceuticals. And when you got sick, you went to the doctor. So for me, part of the plant medicine path was reclaiming the sense that I had um, the right, the ability, the knowledge, the know-how to heal myself. Not always. Sometimes you need somebody else's thoughts and opinions. But um I didn't grow up with that sense. I grew up with, you know, you get sick, you go to the doctors. And so it was a moment of empowerment to realize, you know, you get sick, you do a little research, you figure some things out. Sometimes you figure things out that the doctors didn't and that there are other ways to um, come into balance for yourself. So what happened to turn that from something that you discovered an interest into looks like your life's work? Um, you know, a lot of serendipity, truthfully. I, I got sick and I was very lucky that my medical doctor at that point, I was living in New York City, um, was studying Chinese medicine. And so she said to me, you know, I'm not far enough along this path, but I don't think Western medicine can figure out what's going on with you. And there are other kinds of medicine, which at that point in my life I was like, oh, other kinds of medicine, really? Um, so she sent me down that rabbit hole of exploring Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine. And um, it was through that, that, you know, I started to have the, the books on the shelf that were about plant medicine, about um, other forms of medicine that really blended medicine and spirituality. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't get into Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine without getting into the spiritual foundations. So when I was in my 30s, um, I had a very serendipitous opportunity. The 
place where I was living in New York was a small town, a small factory town. And one of the big New York City museums bought one of the old factories and put their sculpture collection there. So all of a sudden, our tiny little town was on the map and New Yorkers were coming up and wanting to buy houses. And my property, um, I, was, I was a school teacher. I had a very inexpensive old Victorian that I was fixing up myself. And uh, all of a sudden it was worth three times what I paid for it. So I was able to take the, the proceeds from that house sale and do anything I wanted. And I, I really, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't have a clear vision. Um, in my mind, I was just giving myself a year sabbatical from teaching, but I had a dream and in the dream, I was sent to Ireland. So I sat down and I made a list of everything I'd ever been interested in and then typed it into AltaVista search engine because Google didn't even exist yet. AltaVista and pottery plus Ireland, you know, photography plus Ireland, weaving plus Ireland. And I kept getting a hit on this herbalist. Oh, I ran the same search over and over again. And I kept getting a hit on this woman in Ireland. And she had a class starting a, a two-month class. So I went off to do that. Um, really just as a lark, just as a like, hey, you got a year off. What are you going to do with it? Uh, but something really touched my heartstrings. Something, something made me feel connected with my own life in a way I never had before when I was there. So I asked her to keep me and I stayed a year. Um, and that was the beginning of, of everything else. Magical place, Ireland. Magical place. There's something about islands. I think the, the way the energy goes around yeah. is different. Yeah. 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 So let's start with your list. The first book is Taran Wanderer by Lloyd Alexander, published in 2005. And you say you weren't a reader before this book. Yeah, so that was uh, 2005 has got to be a reprint because. Um, ah, it's I much older, read, is it? It is much older. I'd say it's probably from the 60s. And ah. I was read this book by a camp counselor when I was eight or nine years old. And I was not a reader. Um, I found out in my late 20s that I'm severely learning disabled, which um, was a surprise. I was in grad school and. I had to take a battery of tests in order to get a tutor. And they came back and were like, <laughs> how have you made it this far? Um, so, I, you know, I was a very late reader and I, books, books were very difficult for me. Um, but a camp counselor started reading this to us at night before bed and she didn't finish the book before uh, so I, we got in the car and I said to my parents, we have to go straight to the bookstore. I need this book. And, you know, my parents could not have been more startled. Um, but what, you know, what I figured out later in life, like, first of all, it was very important to me personally because I, I wasn't a reader before then. Um, but what I, what I learned, you know, as I kind of progressed along both my journey as a reader and a writer and a spiritual seeker was that this book followed Joseph Campbell's hero's journey format really closely. So I was introduced to a, a Celtic mythology and the hero's journey um, at a very young age. And both of those concepts really sunk in. Um, I think that the hero's journey in particular has formed a backbone 
for a lot of the ways that I think about our, our journey through life. You know, I believe that we are all, each of us, on a quest, on a journey. And when we hit the rough spots, if we look at the arc of a hero's journey, we can kind of give ourselves a pep talk through the bad spots, right? Because, you know, there are monsters, <laughs> there are gatekeepers, there are teachers. And so we can use the arc of this journey to teach ourselves how to make it through our own lives. And, you know, Lloyd Alexander used the hero's journey so beautifully. My young mind kind of sponged it up without even really understanding what I was absorbing, but it's influenced everything since. Mm. Book number two, The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. That is quite an old one, 1902, I think that was published. Yeah, it's a very old one. And this, was, this one was a surprise to me. I'm sure you hear this from people all the time as they're kind of sitting down to do this, like what really comes up. I, I realized how many times I have pulled up quotes from that book over the years. You know, how many times I've gone back to um, some of Helen's grit at getting through life. And, you know, it, it surprised me. Like as I was doing this exercise was fascinating because for me, it was very visual. I, I could picture myself walking through the elementary school library and what books I was pulling off the shelves. And um, that story of overcoming, I mean, Helen Keller had like a, a rough and rocky road. She had a condition that they didn't really know how to mm -hmm. handle people um, who couldn't interact in usual ways. And she was, she was taught language um, through someone tapping in her hand, you know? So... I think for me, it, it cracked open two things. First of all, I didn't realize that I was learning disabled, but I knew that I had very large obstacles to getting through the things that everyone else in my classes seemed to be pretty facile with. Um, so Helen's grit really spoke to me. But I think the reason it was included more than that um, was it showed me that there are so many different ways to learn and so many different ways to absorb information. You know, here we have Helen learning language through someone tapping in her hand. And so later in my life, when I'm working with an herbalist who's saying, communicate with the plants, communicate with the plants, they don't speak English. But if Helen can learn language through someone tapping in her hands, mm -hmm. there's got to be a way for me to communicate with the plants, right? There's got to be a way for me to um, get out of my own shell the way that Helen was in her own shell and find a way to communicate with the world outside of me. So, you know, I, I haven't reread that book. And in, in doing this list, I thought, oh, I need to rewrite, you know, I need to reread the, the book in its entirety because I've gone back and read quotes over and mm. over again, um, but not the whole book. And I'm, I, I think it's worth a reread. So if anyone out there wants to read with me, we can do a little Helen Keller book club. 
What is there? Do you have one particular quote above all others? Oh, dear. You know, I, I think I actually used one in my latest book, and I'm drawing a complete blank on it right now. So let's see if it comes to me while we're talking. <laughs> okay, let's move on to book three, which is The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, 1947. So I, I'm Jewish, and I was raised going to Hebrew school. And it didn't touch me. You know, I remember... Um, there's a, a prayer in Judaism called the Shema and it translates roughly as hero Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And I remember sitting in synagogue muttering under my breath to my mother, the Lord is one. What kind of BS is that? You know? Um, so I had a, a fairly antagonistic um, relationship with Judaism. It was something that was kind of hoisted upon me and it was supposed to be something that was feeding my soul. And it was really just making me angry. You know, I was um, being taught things that didn't sit with um, my own personal beliefs. And, you know, some of this is obviously who you're being taught by. I had one very, I don't even, I, I don't even know what the right word is. I had one teacher at Hebrew school who um, he liked to shock us. Like he brought a cow's brain in to class one day. I was like, why, why are we looking at a cow's brain? Um, and he told us a story about how in the Bible, if a man could put his fist between a woman's breasts, he could divorce her. Her breasts were too small. And I was like, why would I, why would I buy into this? <laughs> why would I buy into this? Um, very masochistic um, religion. Of course, you know, I got sent to the rabbi's office for protesting and our rabbi was was absolutely amazing. He said, he said, I am so glad you're fighting back. You should be a rabbi. And that and that is actually the beauty of Judaism, right? Is that it, it is a religion that is very much based on um, debate and conversation and it it applauds the rebels. And so I, I absolutely appreciate that. Um, Reading the diary of Anne Frank, I think was the first time that I felt a deep empathy with someone else of my religion, that it took me away from the debate and the, you know, this doesn't work and this concept of God doesn't make sense to me, to um, this deep sense of lineage and, um, you know, my people have been going through the same struggles Helen Keller went through, like as a people over time, over history. I think it was the first time that I felt a part of a lineage, you know, like rooted and grounded in something um, as opposed to um, being forced into something. So it was very much a turning point, like within my heart, of like, oh, okay, I might not agree with all the tenets of this religion, but there's also a lineage, a tradition, uh, a culture here that mm -hmm. not only am I very much a part of, but I will always be seen from the outside as being a part of. Yeah. And right. And so what, what does that mean? And what, what could that mean um, for my own future? So that was a very important book in I think that's kind of self-acceptance. You know, the German Jews 
saw themselves as just part of society. And that's how I saw myself. And I was always a little baffled. You know, we lived in in a place in Pennsylvania that had an, like hate groups and things. And so I was, I was warned about things that I shouldn't do and shouldn't say outside the house. Um, and it was, it was the first time that I, like, that I really understood from someone close to my own age, how this could impact a life, uh, a, a community, a generation. Mm. Um, so yeah, so a very important book. Mm. Book number four, The Dancers of Own by Elizabeth A. Lynn, published in 1980. Yeah. So um, after reading Taryn Wander, I continued reading fantasy. I really, like, I, I just sucked up these created worlds and these, you know, dystopias and utopias and the things that the fantasy and science fiction writers were creating it gave me a way of understanding the world that I actually lived in, which I know sounds, you know, kind of, kind of perverse. Like it was like that through a glass darkly. Mm -hmm. I could, I, I could understand our culture through the differences. Um, this particular book was um, about a, a troupe of dancers who traveled through this, you know, mythical, fantastical kingdom. And there were two things that were um, quite notable for me. One was the way that magical powers, and for those of you listening, not watching, I'm air quoting, um, were spoken about was much closer to the reality of what I considered spirituality. Like for instance, the lead dancer was, was a patterner. He could see the pattern of things and therefore understand what would come next. And that was, that was something that I had felt, you know, if you go back to our opening description, occasional Oracle was, was on my list. Um, you know, friends come to me because I often have a sense of what's next. And for me, it's, It's not um, pulling it out of nothing. It's that when you can feel the thread of story, back to Joseph Campbell, back to that hero's journey of our own lives, weaving through, then a lot of times you know what the next beat is. It's there. It's, you know, you can feel it. It's just right on the edge of coming. And so this idea of magic being something that was more like intuition, more like spirituality, more like something achievable to us muggles was very appealing. And then the other thing that I was exposed to for the first time, and this is for me fascinating because my uncle was gay, but it was not talked about and I did not know my own uncle was gay, um, was there were gay characters. And I am, um, you know, there's so many new words and I, I don't always know how to use them all, but I'm not a person particularly activated by the sexual act. Like that's not how I make my decisions about my life. It's not how I make the decisions about who I'm interested in spending time with. Um, so it was the first time I was exposed to this idea of 
it doesn't have to be boy meets girl. And, you know, you're driven by mad lust. And now you're going to be together forever and live happily ever after. Um, which was just another like door open to the world is bigger than you think it is. You can think in ways that um, you haven't been exposed to yet. And by thinking in those ways, you're going to go down different pathways. So mm-hmm. that book I actually have reread and I've been surprised. It, it holds up pretty well, um, you know, over time. So like, that's one that I can say that dive, dive back into that. If you're interested in some like, you know, earlier portrayals of um, different ways of living, different ways of thinking, different ways of being in the world. Book five, Howard's End by E.M. Forster, considered to be his masterpiece. This one was published in 1910. And you say that if we've only seen the movie, we're missing the point. Yeah. The the movie, you know, everyone who's read a good book says the movie. Um, Howard's End... I think, I think for me, there are a couple different things with Howard's End. First of all, if you read um, the, the epigraph in the beginning of the book, only connect. And that, I mean, like, <laughs> you know how people get quotes tattooed on their arms? That's what I should have tattooed on my arm because it, that phrase has become my motto, my touchstone, the thing that I go back to when I get lost, when I get confused only connect. If we can figure out that piece, if we can connect, then we can take the next step. We can figure out what comes next. Um, There's also a scene in, in Howard's End that I go back to over and over. And it's, it's a scene at, at the orchestra. And, um, the family is sitting, listening to the orchestra and uh, the youngest daughter who is, you know, she's supposed to be prone to flights of fancy, quite the imagination. Um, she is listening to Beethoven and she's narrating it in her mind. And first a goblin walks across the universe, thump, thump, thump. And then more goblins come. And then Beethoven sends in the knights and the, and the warriors to blow the goblins back. But at the very end, a goblin walks again across the universe. And she says, you can trust Beethoven because of this, because Beethoven knows that there will always be goblins and they will always walk across the universe, even, you know, even after all the nights and all the glory. And, um, that acknowledgement of the dark side of things, that we cannot make this a perfect world, that there are going to be um, humans driven by pure evil, you know, whether we want to call it mental illness or like whatever category of evil it falls into, it still ends up being evil. And I, I find... I love your name, the Nobia Spiritual Podcast, because I do find that there's a lot of, you know, um, follow the light 
And while we can follow the light, we still have to understand that there's dark and not everybody is going to follow the light. And so for me, that very grounded understanding of the world we live in um, has been incredibly important. I also worked on um, my senior thesis. I, I worked on it for, for uh, Howard's End. And I found something, I don't know that anyone else has ever written about this, I got so lost in it that my thesis advisor finally said, you need to just go, you know, write me some short little paper so I can give you an A and we can move on. Um, I started tracking through Howard's End references to the history of philosophy in chronological order through the book, starting in ancient Greece. I, I was a philosophy major. So um, as I was reading these, these things, just like a sentence would pop out as like not being Forrester's exact voice. And I'd highlight it and I'd go to the library and dig around and I would find that he was pulling from someone else. And like he essentially traces the history of philosophy through Howard's end. Um, it's brilliant. And I, I don't know if, if anyone else has, you know, written on that at the, at the time that I was doing this in the early nineties, there was, there was nothing else written on it. Um, but I think that that backbone of cultural history that's, you know, hidden in that book, it speaks to us subconsciously and subliminally. Um, and I think that that's part of the magic of that book that just, it's, it's a masterpiece. Mm. Yes, it's hard for people to understand that we live in a world of contrasts. You're never, ever going to have one or the other. You're going to have both. Always. Always, yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to a No BS Spiritual Book Club interview and sharing the 10 books that had the biggest influence on her life journey is best-selling author and speaker Maya Toll, whose award-winning books include the Wild Wisdom series, Letting Magic In and The Night School. We'll be back with more from Maya after this break. Om Times TV. Maya Angelou once said that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, and when I'm not hosting Om Times Media's flagship radio show, What Is Going On, and the No BS Spiritual Book Club, I help people share their untold stories. Books are my life, my joy, and my passion. And there is no greater reward than helping aspiring writers get their books out of their heads and into the hands of those who are waiting to read them. If you feel that you have a book in you, but don't know where to begin, visit sedgebeer.com, click on the Work With Me tab and find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be just what you've been looking for. That's sedgebeer.com, S-E-D-G-B-E-E-R.com. Imagine becoming a super influencer. Reinvent yourself, invest in your brand, and then manifest your success with a robust, spheric approach. 
Om Times Media and Broadcasting offers a unique and multifaceted way to become the spiritual and conscious influencer you deserve to be by putting your message across our powerful platform with its proven record of integrity and excellence. Through our produced shows, Own Times offers the opportunity to become a social media TV personality, a radio show host, an Own Times magazine columnist, and a syndicated podcaster, all in one shot. By live streaming your show on Ohm Times TV and broadcasting it across the extensive Ohm Times radio and TV networks, you become more than a host. You become an ambassador and a force for positive change. Ohm Times, open yourself to the possibilities. I wanted to talk to you about a program called the Dream Arc and a retreat that we're doing. And I want to invite you along. And the Dream Arc is a, is a dream technology. And, and even the latest physics is suggesting now that reality is not what we think it is, that it's kind of a construct. And that the dream arc teaches us how to use the full operating system to navigate our brain frequencies between waking and sleeping and dreaming and to move through the inner realms and the outer realms seamlessly. And you will work in the dream arc with certain animals that will come to you, maybe in real life, maybe through your intuition, in magical ways, or perhaps through, you know, just dreams that come to you. It's filled the dream up with invitations and suggestions and tasks that you, you choose intuitively. You choose the ones for you. You don't know what you're choosing, but they come to you. You know, so please join us as we dive down the wormhole into the dream arc and let's see what happens. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Welcome back. Maya Toll, book six, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, the reclusive Czechoslovakian literary giant. And this book was published in 1984. Yeah. So I've read this book um, when I was at university and I, you know, I so acutely felt what I, I always called existential angst, you know, this sense of like, what are we, what are we doing here? And how, like, I don't even think I could get to how can I make my life meaningful? Um, I was more looking for that like divine purpose. You know, someone tell me why I'm here because I can't figure it out. And <laughs> if I can't figure it out, then why am I here? Um, and reading The Unbearable Lightness of Being really let me know that I was not alone in this feeling or this thought. You know, when you're, when you're 19 or 20 and um, you're fairly certain that like these are, these are unique turnings of the brain and um, there's no answer and there's no way to get to happiness, simply, simply seeing 
that like, oh, this is not unique. This is part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is part of, of what we need to have some grit and overcome um, was, was really huge for me. And I think also like, again, back to that idea of story, I was a philosophy major. So I was getting a lot of these concepts in very dry, very um, dense, difficult to understand texts. And so to then see them reflected in literature and to get the same concepts in a way that I could sit with and I could feel and I could empathize for for characters um, allowed me to understand ideas that you know were were like living up in my brain but not becoming embodied. And I, I do think that that's what literature does. It helps us to embody concepts that, you know, otherwise are just sitting up in our brains, which for me is what happens with a lot of those wonderful nonfiction books. You know, they just sit up here and I can't sift them down. And so um, the unbearable lightness of being allowed me to embody the feeling of existentialism, to, to, to really understand it in my person. Um, and to also understand that, you know, this was something you could live with, right? This was not something that you um, try to accept because of. So I, I think that that was an important moment for me. Like other people are, are living with this. This can become part of your journey. Um, this is not, you know, this is, this is not something that, that should cause you to exit. Um, yeah. Mm. Book seven is a book that you say softened the hard critical edges of your thinking. Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman, published in 1992. Yeah, this was a wonderful little book. Um, I still I still page through it sometimes. So uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's fictitious, um, but it's, you know, what Einstein might have been dreaming as he's working on the theory of relativity. And um, I think that for me, I had like a division in my brain between the fantasy worlds I was reading about and the real world, right? And like what you're allowed to do in the real world and, you know, where the line is between sanity and insanity and um, what, what are the things you can say, think, talk about that um, might like push you over the woo-woo edge, right? And make you like an unreliable source. And to, to understand how creative Einstein had to be to get to things that we now consider science, that we now consider kind of the foundations of um, our shared reality, really opened me up to this idea that like, the world is not as concrete as, as we think it is. Time is not as concrete as we think it is. Everything's a little bendier. And if everything's a little bendier, then different things are possible. Our thoughts can be a a little bendier, right? Um, 
it allowed for, it allowed space for spiritualism in an odd sort of way. Here we are talking about Einstein, um, who we all think of as one of the science geniuses. And yet um, by seeing how malleable and flexible his mind was, it gave me permission to have malleability and flexibility and to not think of the world as, as quite so fixed, yeah. which I think on a spiritual journey, like that's a necessity. Yes. You know, you have to have room to let other ideas in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Book number eight, Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver, published in 2000. Yeah. I've read this book many, many times. Um, so Prodigal Summer, it has a couple storylines, but the one that really spoke to me was um, about a woman who was womaning, manning, womaning, uh, a fire tower up in the mountains. And so she would have to like look out to see, you know, if, if there were fires and she was up there by herself and she was deeply experiencing nature and deeply interacting with nature, which um, I had been, you know, beginning to see that that was possible. I was, I was a horseback rider growing up. And so, you know, I had that sense that you could come into communion with something non-human, but um, you know, this is not a, a magical book. This is a, a straight up novel. And so somehow in a way that didn't offend my need for realism, um, I was able to see how a very normal, usual person was interacting with the natural world and was coming into communion, was connecting in this way that, you know, Forrester had told us to connect. And, um, you know, I, be I began to, to see different pathways. I, I mean, I think we're seeing a theme here, like all of these books opened up my mind to um, the possibility mm -hmm. that my life could be something different than what I'd been told growing up, um, that I could step out of the parameters that I had um, been raised with. And so for me, this was like the piece of this was that natural world piece and how the characters were interacting with animals, were interacting with plants, were finding themselves through these interactions. Mm. Yeah. Book nine, Drawing Down the Moon, which is Druids, Goddess, Worshippers, and Other Pagans in America by Margot Adler, published in 1979. Yeah, so Margot Adler um, was an NPR correspondent. And she went into um, the pagan community and she treated it like a journalistic assignment. You know, she interviewed people and she went to festivals and she really tried to understand what was going on and what the thinking was within those communities. And I read that book, oh, probably in like 2003, 2004. 
And it was really the first time that I had seen inside non-traditional spirituality um, through a lens that I could understand. You know, one of the things that I often talk to people about when I'm, when I'm teaching, when I'm lecturing is over our lifetimes, we all develop our individual symbol systems. So if, you know, you have a dream about a grandmother, that's based on your relationship with your grandmother. And my relationship with my grandmother is different. So when you then recount your dream about a grandmother, I'm filtering it through my symbol, right, of grandmother. Mm. Um, and so we end up sometimes with these conversations around spirituality where someone thinks they're telling you something profound. Because in their world, it is profound. Something incredibly profound just happened. But when they give voice to those words and those symbols, they don't, they don't touch the, the listener in the same way. And I think that, th that that is a problem that we see over and over again with spiritual memoir. You know, that a lot of times the reader does not understand the symbolism that the writer thinks, like it's so clear to them. So reading something by Margot Adler through this journalistic lens where I wasn't trying to um, wade through someone else's symbolism and someone else's um, spiritual background, but I was kind of standing on the outside, having Adler as the interpreter, kind of being like, oh, okay, so what we're really saying is um, God is not one. There are lots of energies that, that we can call God. That I can understand. When you start telling me, then I got on my knees and prayed to this goddess and that goddess, and she came to me in a bubble of whatever, then all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, that's not my language. That's not my way of seeing this. And I, and I feel distance. But when it can be interpreted for me, I was like, like, the gist of this is there are a lot of different ways of relating to God. There can be a multiplicity of gods. Um, the idea of one God might come from all these different energies working together to create that oneness oh okay now i can now i can separate the specifics from the generalities right and and get an understanding so there was there was something about the way adler took um ritual and spirituality and different people's dreams and different people's um celebrations and was able to explain the the why behind it that made me go, oh, I think that way too. Not, oh, that's different from me, but oh, that is me. I just use different words, different language, mm. different images, different symbols. Yeah. Mm. Final book, book 10, Owning Your Own Shadow, Understanding the Dark Side of the Psyche by Robert A. Johnson, published in 1991. Yeah. This is, this is an amazing book. It's this big. I mean, it's the tiniest book. So um, it, it's a really quick read, but it uses a lot of Jungian um, theory to understand our shadow selves 
And one of the things that, that really struck struck me with this book was he talks quite a bit about Christian faith and about how um, some of the fire and brimstone in Christian faith is a way to express the shadow self in the safe enclosure of the Sunday service. And I, I found that really fascinating, this idea that we need to give our shadow self a place to come out and play that is safe, that is enclosed, that is um, not going to have some negative impact on, on others. And, you know, I, I had never really heard that concept before. I had been in a place of understanding, yes, there's dark and yes, there's light. But this idea of, yes, there's dark, yes, there's light, there's dark within me and I don't have to hide it. I can express it, but I have to find ways of expressing it that are safe for me and that are safe for others. And that was a, that was a huge revelation. You know, how do we move through our own cycles of dark and light? Um, allowing ourselves to be both and doing it in such a way that it's actually productive, that you can use your shadow self for good, <laughs> right? Um, mm. that, that, that level of permission, like I, I, I come back to that over and over again. Like when I say something in a conversation that I'm like, was not particularly kind. Okay. That was your shadow self coming out to play. What did it have to tell you? And now how are you going to fix that relationship that you just bumped up? Um, mm. you know, and so I, I think that for me, that was, was such an important book um, for self-acceptance and also as someone who, who works with groups to um, understand group dynamics, to create places where people can safely let out, you know, even things like that, like their doubt and they're like, you know, when you're teaching something and you're looking at a couple people who are kind of going like, eh, yeah, I'm not buying that. Right. How do you create space for that? Yeah. Okay, okay, let's let's let that out. Let's let's air that out in a in a way that um keeps it from being poisoned to the to the entire group. Um how do we kind of create the, the fire and brimstone church for a second and have our little our little rage flash and then move on from it. Um so a, a wonderful little book that you know it's it's more christian uh in its focus than my particular belief system is but so easy to just learn from it um you know despite not being 100 percent aligned with with all the examples hmm. well that's your 10 best list now if you could meet spend a day with any one of those authors which one would you choose mm. oh dear I think, it, I mean, it would have to be Forrester because I'm so curious about this thread of philosophy that's that's running through the book and whether it was intentional or whether, you know, like that was just the education of the day and he built it in without even being consciously aware of it. I, um, yeah, there's also, I've also just looked at so many pictures of him and there is something about, um, about his face that that makes me feel like there's a warmth in there that I, I kind of would want to experience in person. Okay. Now you are a 
prolific creator and producer <laughs> of books. People only have to go to your website, which is beautiful, by the way, um, and look at some of your books to, to, you know, appreciate what an incredible job you're doing. So I want to know, why did you put in your keywords major cluts? Because you do not seem like a klutz to me at all. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I, um, I have some, some literal depth perception issues. So I, I was born with a partially paralyzed eye. And, you know, I, I love how we all create our stories. So, you know, this eye is partially paralyzed. And I studied herbalism with a, a Cherokee medicine man. And he said to me, oh, well, you know, you would have been scooped up as a baby because you have a paralyzed eye, you see differently. And you would have been trained from a very young age had you been born in my tribe. So, you know, we all, we all come up with the stories that, that help us feel good about all the, all the little strange things about us. But so, yeah, I, I literally have some depth perception issues and I'm constantly walking into the corners of things. And um, it's, it's not pretty. I'm quite bruised up most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, um, you know, your books, the, um, the uh, wild, um, what's it called? The wild, wild wisdom, wild wisdom yeah, series. I mean, you have these beautifully illustrated books on crystals, on herbs and different things. I mean, where do you get your inspiration from? It's probably a silly so, question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a silly question. So, you know, the first book in that series is the illustrated herbiary or herbiary for those of you across the pond. Um, and I had actually been trying to write a memoir of my time in Ireland. And at that point, I still didn't have the writing chops. Um, but every time I workshopped the book, people were noticing I had these little write-ups on the different herbs at the top of every chapter. And people loved them. And so um, I had been hooked up with an editor and I, I said to her, you know, people are loving these little descriptions. What would you think of doing a deck that was just these descriptions of the herbs? And we were, we were very excited about the project. She took it to her team and they shot it down. Um, she said, we don't know how to sell a deck. Um, decks are a different buyer in the bookstore. So went round and round. And eventually we came up with the idea of, of doing a book and, um, they then went and put a little deck in the back as perforated cards. And I was, I was very against that. People who like decks don't want little flimsy perforated cards, but we kind of did it as an extra and people liked them so much that um, eventually my publishing house figured out how to do, to do decks. So now we have decks for, for those books. So um, in the ancient world, there are three medicine kingdoms, animal, vegetable, mineral. And um, I've studied, um, Taoist medicine, a little bit of Ayurveda, ancient um, European medicine. And so these three medicine kingdoms really come into play. And if you think about it, we still work with the three medicine kingdoms. When you're you know, taking magnesium and iron, um, that's mineral, right? When you're eating your greens, that, that's plant. Um, and you know, we use animals for protein. We, there, are, there are also all different things that are still used medicinally um, that are animal-based. So the herbiary came first 
And then I approached my publisher and said, you know, we have two other medicine kingdoms. We have, you know, the animals and the, and the, and the minerals. So that's how we got to that trio. Um, and then we did a fourth book that's called The Wild Wisdom Companion, which is about time and how to use, you know, the three medicine kingdoms over the course of the year, kind of through time and, and through the seasons. Um, so th that was the beginning. And then I did a book called The Night School, which uh, my mom said, well, now you can't write another book. You've just put everything you know in one place. I, I imagined, you know, if you were going to Hogwarts, what would you learn? And so I wrote a book that was kind of a course of study um, based on that. And, you know, it is obviously not the first book of that type, but so many of those books are dirt dry for those of us who have trouble connecting with nonfiction. So I, I created a fictional character. Her name's B. Marlowe. And um, she is the professor that's taking you through these studies. And she's funny and snarky. I kind of, you know, pictured this as the, the spiritual mystical version of the magic school bus um, and tried to create something that, um, that moved the reader along with some of the same techniques that you get moved through a novel, um, but, but through this spiritual information. So um, it's, it's a very different kind of spiritual book. And then recently, just in June, I finally was able to publish that memoir that I had been working on um, from the very, very beginning, you know, and what was interesting to me about that is when I sat down to write it, I was very focused on Ireland because everybody always wants to know what was it like to be the Witches Apprentice in Ireland. Um, but the truth is a lot of that was repetitive and lonely and often, you know, boring. You know, I'd wake up in the morning on a farm in the middle of nowhere and my teacher would hand me a basket and say, don't come back until this is full of elderberries. And then I would spend the entire day picking elderberries. Um, but what was really interesting to me was the journey to become the person who had enough confidence in that like tug from her chest to sell her home, leave her teaching career, and go to Ireland to apprentice with a witch. I mean, who does that? <laughs> so the, the book is in three parts, and the first two parts are really showing how I was um, developing that intuitive muscle and, and struggling with what intuition was, what it wasn't, um, with trusting myself and with trusting that I could feel into the larger patterns and find my place within them. So um, I am, the feedback I'm getting from letting magic in is I, I just got something this morning. Someone said, you know, this feels like a summer vacation. Like I'm, I'm at the end and I don't want it to end. And I'm, I'm so grateful because my goal was to create something that would be like a breadcrumb path. Your path is not the same as mine, but here is enough of the universal path that we take on our spiritual seeking that you can follow the breadcrumbs to get to where you're going. Um, and that was, you know, that goes back to, I 
tried to be very cognizant in the writing that we all have different spiritual symbols. We all have different ways of approaching and connecting with whatever we consider divine. Um, so how can I thread a story that allows people to see their own story within it? And I am, I'm very hopeful from the feedback I'm getting that I at least came close. There's, um, there's a thread running through everything that you've spoke about today, the books that you have shared with us, you know, your own journey, the books that you produce. Um, and for the first time, I think, probably un I've always been unconsciously aware of it, but for the first time, you know, it's very much in my consciousness that the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom, nature is, is magical in every sense of the word. And the word, you know, if you want magic in your life, you can't not allow nature in. The two go together. And I've never yes. thought of it in that way. So thank you for yeah. that. You're so welcome. I mean, I feel like we are so surrounded by nature and it's so easy to ignore it. And then we go seeking, like we, you know, we're, we're trying so hard to find meaning, purpose, magic. Yes. And it is literally right there. Mm. Yeah. Well, we have come to the end of the show, unfortunately. Um, I would encourage any viewer to go to your website and have a look at the books, uh, the the different projects you've been involved in, the puzzles, the cards, the journals. I mean, everything in there speaks of magic in a way. Lots of people talk about magic, but with your work, I feel it. One can actually feel it when one looks at the pictures. So, Maya Toll, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you thank for you adding so much, your Tim Best Spiritual Book List to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's Library of Recommendations. Um, we really appreciate your contribution. Thank you so much for this opportunity. If you want to read um, Maya's descriptions uh, on the website, you can find her dedicated page at the nobsspiritualbookclub.com. And you can learn more about her books, her speaking events, um, and sign up for her newsletter, which very intriguingly, intriguingly is called Unkempt. I love that you've <laughs> chosen that word because it has all kinds of, you know, invitational um, connotations there um, at her website, mayatoll.com. That's it for this week. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, and I'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 Best Interview for the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Till then, it's goodbye from me, and thank you again to Maya Tom. Thank you. Bye.